Hey, welcome to the Comic Syllabus, where we read widely and dig deep in the worlds of graphic novels and comics. Today, we're going to talk about Run, the follow-up to the March Trilogy, um, of course, by Representative John Lewis, um, late departed uh, hero of the Civil Rights Movement, and uh, written also by Andrew Aiden, art by El Fury, joining with some contributions by Nate Powell. Um, we'll talk about Run, book one, and then we will get into um, some of the Suicide Squad and What If comics that are there on Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe Infinite. Um, and that'll be our, our conversation today. So um, this podcast is sometimes recorded late Saturday night <laughs> because it's due up the next day, the next morning on Sunday morning at multiversitycomics.com where you can find uh, comics reviews and comics news and comics interviews and any comics things you choose because there is a lot out there at multiversitycomics.com including a bunch of other podcasts that I enjoy listening to and I hope you do too. Um, our podcast <laughs> shows up there Sunday mornings for the time being. <laughs> we will see. Um, but uh, shows up there Sunday mornings and um, usually, uh, usually we include a video episode of the different segments of this podcast. Um, this week, I was awash in work. Work that um, I get to do. Work that as I rev up uh, for the school year and uh, the summer closes off, we, we have a fairly state, uh, late start to our school year in my school district where I teach. Um, I am uh, busy, super busy getting involved in stuff that feels purposeful, feels meaningful. Um, the school that, that I work at, we are, you know, coordinating with uh, with each other as teachers to, to teach about climate justice and, and climate science, um, environmental justice, and our students, um, you know, they, they are in whom we put our hope um, for the existential crisis and the already occurring catastrophes that uh, we are facing as a world. Um, and so, and so um, it's been really meaningful work for me this past week to collaborate with others and uh, figure out how to teach about, about climate change. Um, but it's kept me plenty busy and I haven't been able to be as engaged um, with podcasting. That doesn't mean though I stopped reading comics. <laughs> so I did read Run as well as a whole bunch of other things and I'm excited to talk about that today. Um, in fact, reading Run brought me back to when I read um, March and each volume of that as it came out was very much a touchstone for me. Um, when I started uh, podcasting about comics, you know, four or five years ago or whatever, it was really about a sense of optimism in what those those texts, you know, those cultural products could, uh, those works of art could inspire in us. Um, at, for me as a kid, inspired by comic books to, um, to, to, to live right, you know, to, to, to serve fellow human beings, to um, imagine a better world. And comics were instrumental in that for me as a kid. And I imagine the ways that that continues to, um, cause us to, to, um, make choices in life that are about, you know, a greater good, uh, as well as to cause us to think critically about what that really means and really to even examine and critique ourselves in our world. Um, and March filled me with so much inspiration because it was the medium of my childhood meeting the heroes of my 20s. Um, when I was in college and, you know, 
in educational equity classes. We watched Eyes on the Prize and uh, that documentary series. And I just continued to just voraciously read about and learn about, um, yes, the leaders of the civil rights movement, um, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Malcolm, Medgar Evers, and then about the Black Panther Party and you know Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, and Eldridge Cleaver, and so on. Uh, these were the you know the voices that informed my political awakening as a young man, and I I read March as a kind of warm revisiting of a lot of that at a time when I was figuring out why my focus on literacies and my focus on texts and reading as an educator, getting back in touch with why that was to me a part of, you know, my way of being uh, involved in social movements. And I remember just the enthusiasm about which I talked about March, um, you know, the John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, Nate Powell series. Um, I was just very grateful that when I, after a, a podcast episode about the second volume, um, with my very, very tiny listenership, the editor of that series actually reached out to me and said that he'd listened and, and invited me to an event that John Lewis and and, and Aiden and, and Nate Powell were going to be at. And I was so disappointed that I couldn't make it because I had, uh, I think I had back to school night, you know, that night and I, I couldn't miss it. Um, missed, I missed out on my chance to, to shake John Lewis's. But um, I talked in that episode about um, how formative those historical and present day heroes were to me, civically, morally, and also the opportunity that I had to go with a group of teachers on a tour of the South of these historic sites in the civil rights movement and to meet people such as Fannie Lou Hamer's sort of right-hand person and and to hear him talk about her spirituality and depth of her moral courage. And, and so the story, the world, the, the people depicted in March, the ways that they confronted, you know, white supremacy, white racism with hope and humanity, um, still are to this day my framework for thinking about the world and so although run book one was understandably delayed for quite a while um and we're getting a different artist's hand um something that i think is a is a is a really a, a beautiful continuation of the style that nate powell brought to the initial trilogy um but really el fury brings a style all 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 their own all her own and um, I, I love the way that we've gone from the March, the MCU, the, the March Civil Rights Movement universe, right, into this era post-1964 Civil Rights Act, where John Lewis is confronting maybe the inevitability in all social movements of having to formalize these energies you know, this, this energy of uprising, this energy of resistance into policy platforms and into parties and into political power, the exercise of the political power. So, you know, so much sought and fought for and, and, and really paid for by blood, you know, the results of all those 
voter drives in Mississippi or protests in Alabama to, to ensure the franchise for black voters, you know, it ought to result in things like what we see in this book. Um, Julian Bond, young lawyer, eventually president of the NAACP and so forth, runs for state office and becomes uh, and encounters all of the tensions therein. When you, when you step into those rings, um, you know, we see through John Lewis's eyes when uh, Lewis, uh, speaking for himself and for SNCC and in agreement with um, so many who had the eyes to see that, you know, the, the, the same dynamics of Jim Crow white supremacy would compel the U.S. government to, you know, maintaining this caste-like structure for sanitation workers, let's say in Memphis, or you know, overseas in um, Vietnam, sending disproportionately black and brown young people to die for a war of what imperialistic capitalist aggression. And so Lewis speaks out about Vietnam just as King did and just as many in the movement did um, to much controversy and chagrin and to Julian Bond being sort of exiled from the state house that he'd been duly elected to and having to fight and fight and fight for those seats that they had rightfully earned. And so really this, you know, run book one is a story of John Lewis marching from, you know, leadership in SNCC and it's just, it's, it's always extraordinary to me. I think at one point in the book, it mentions him being 24 or something like that. You know, he's like barely in his mid-20s. But he's already experienced this lifetime of, you know, growing up on the farm, but, but confronting racism and then being involved with other young people in uh, really in the making of remaking of history. And going from being president of SNCC to the very fraught place where, you know, ideologies or beliefs of nonviolence began to come into conflict with the Black Power Movement, with an increasingly sharp critique of the sort of what's perceived as the placating perspective of nonviolence, and you know the the need for a more radical and perhaps um, armed resistance against the Bull Connors and the like, um, the, the George Wallaces and who are still very much around and alive uh, and, and active and, and clutching to power at the time of this book and, and in their own forms in our, in our times. And so John Lewis um, in this book, you know, confronts and, and this gives some of it away, but obviously this is all in the history that you uh, you should find in your textbooks, right? John Lewis is reelected as the leader, uh, the chairman of SNCC, but there's a kind of recall because of those internal divisions that are starting to form around strategies, around tactics, around what's really necessary to get justice. And Lewis 
sees himself exiting SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as it itself shifts from that commitment to nonviolent action, direct action, and begins to see for himself the, the, the sort of logical progression to run, to run for office. And so, of course, this story is the story of the John Lewis who eventually becomes you know, Congressman, Representative John Lewis, and the ongoing work from that position of power. And he's not shy about some of the compromises, although, you know, all of the characters and folks in the movement that we're talking about, clearly this is represented from Lewis's point of view. One thing that um, Aiden and company take special pains to do is to, to footnote the, the this book. Um, I love that there's a pretty extensive set of pages in the back with all the historical material that you can follow up with. Um, but the part of the history that this book depicts is the part where, in my oversimplifying mind, things get really complicated. And I just love that Lewis's voice continues to ring with the moral clarity that He's always maintained, you know, maintained all the way through till when he was still doing sit-ins um, on the floor of Congress to the end. Um, but he also, I think, rather generously, if not, you know, taking pains to represent uh, fully the other side, really just 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 shows how complex things are, um, how good-hearted people uh, who had put their lives on the line in the movement, uh, it was logical for them to go down one road. And yet it was logical for uh, Lewis uh, to go down the ones he went down, uh, eventually, of course, to run. Um, and, I, and I think this is just so important because I think when um, all of us get involved in social movements, the questions of even if you are able to earn a few victories, what next? And when are you not just an upstart movement, but when do you need to find your way into the decision-making halls of power? And then when you do, are you not then liable to the same critique, to, um, to becoming the authority figures that you know, you were pushing against? And then how do you continue to be uh, pushing for change once you're in that position? Um, that's the part of Lewis's life that, you know, me as somebody entering my 40s, I just, I need those stories, you know? I need that guidance. I need that um, illumination on, in the midst of these complexities, how then will I? I, I love it that even though it's been a pause of a few years, Aiden and uh, Fury and Powell, uh, they don't miss a step. Uh, we have some of the same um, dramatic storytelling power, the overlay of headlines, the, the way that um, figures walk into, say, the International Affairs Commission to um, take on a new ass assignment, or the way that the heavily shadowed um, uses of, you know, large swaths of black with the, the drama of rain um, in the in some of the back matter 
the artist El Fury talks uh, about how um, to achieve authenticity, you know, you had to re study all kinds of source materials and photography and, and even some conversations with uh, folks who were actually there to kind of correct the record about what, where folks were and what, what conditions were around them at different parts of this, of this history. And thinking about these creators keeping this history uh, living and accessible through these graphic novels that, you know, March, the March trilogy I've used in my classroom and I know is being used in classrooms all over the place. Um, I think Run is, I hope, just the beginning of a great uh, follow up that becomes its own all too necessary kind of civic education, you know, uh, an experience, a literary experience of these questions of what do we do when we have the opportunity to try to seize power in a, in a democracy, you know, and I think about all of the young people now who are protesters for, for um, climate justice, you know, themselves coming from families who were in some senses climate refugees, and when their energies of urgency of, of, of needing of calling for change um, put them in positions where they are making decisions they are running governments or corporations they are um, leading nonprofits they are engineers um, all those thorny questions compromise determination uh, when you stay longer when you decide that it's time to move on you know from what flank are you contributing to the cause um, those questions are real for people and, and will be real for our I just love that this graphic novel series, unpacking them from the life of an exemplary human being. Um, I, miss, I miss John Lewis. I miss, you know, reading about his exploits in the news. I, I miss the feeling when um, you'd be searching for somebody there to say something and he or Elijah coming, well, we, we do have some, although everybody is rotten through and through. <laughs> so um, where do we put our hope? Uh, I had to say reading run was refreshing this week because in, in not having much time to do the podcast, it refocused me on the purpose of comic syllabus. Um, you know, we read widely and we dig deep because we like comics. And there's something that is really meaningful to me personally about it. But I just, you know, feel a lot of gratitude for y'all for being with me on this ride. And I say that because as the school year approaches, um, that same purpose that compels me to do the podcast um, maybe also compels me to other things that will prevent me from really doing the podcast. I don't know the near-term fate, but I just really feel grateful for folks like, you know, this time around, new and 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 folks who've interacted with me in the past, um, you know, Kai and, and, and Jana and Frank, and Mark and Greg and, and Alexander Sight and, and Johnny and Sturgios and Nick and so many others who've, who've um, offered me encouragement or ideas or feedback about the podcast. And um, thank you for listening. Um, I, I just think that when I say let's keep reading. I think it is partly the optimism and the hope that, you know, 
we are making sense of and also trying to create and amplify the kinds of messages. Oh, you know, one of the things that was in the first March book was that um, Montgomery bus boycott comic that made the rounds and still lives as an artifact of that history. And I, I'm happy to report that we kind of revisit that in Run Volume 1, that there's a comic book about, um, it, it talks on page 46 about uh, Jennifer Lawson, a SNCC staff, SNCC staff member who participated in the, in the Children's March in Birmingham and who um, joined SNCC as a student at the Tuskegee Institute and then becomes a full-time organizer and works with um, Cortland Cox to make a, a, a series of comic books explaining to new voters how they could vote for the new party that was being established, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which is just such an important part of the movement at that time. Um, in fact, it is Jennifer Lawson drawing these comic books that uh, Elle Fury in um, The Back Matter writes about clarifying exactly what kind of setting. Uh, I, I'll let you... Um, but man, comics, right? They're a thing in this whole thing. Uh, I was listening to uh, Ezra Klein podcast um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates and, and Nicole Hannah-Jones were on there and, and, and Coates was talking about, again, about why he was writing Black Panther and Captain America and how important it is for the imaginations of young people to be um, stirred. Um, honestly, the way that I think my young imagination was stirred. And so I keep thinking about this, you know, climate justice curriculum, you know, working with an NSF grant with hopes that when we know that we're part of really a sea of educators and, and NGOs just all trying to pitch in because it's going to take all hands on deck, right? <laughs> and But I can't help but think about uh, Jor-El, <laughs> Kal-El, uh, you know, a planet about to explode and really just trying to build the ark to save our children. <laughs> um, there's an urgency to what we're about um, there's an urgency to, and the way that comics can stretch our imaginations to fathom how truly difficult all of that is, and also um, how important it is for us to maintain our moral clarity. Um, grateful for comics, like, um, and grateful that you've been listening. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, you can tell without the uh, visuals, I'm, I'm going a little more fast and loose than I than I have in the last few episodes uh, with the podcast here. But I just want to segue to um, talking about comic books that turn into movies <laughs> and TV shows. Um, because folks are paying attention to uh, to what if all of a sudden. And oh, man, I just got to say, so the 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 most fun thing about the MCU for me to observe as a phenomenon is the way that the MCU essentially opens up to a whole lot of non-comics readers the things about comics nerddom that are make it you know glorious and wonderful for us nerds and there there are so many people who are now experiencing perhaps re-experiencing but you know many of them encountering for the first time these things that blew our minds when we were young nerds, right? Like <laughs> Kang the Conqueror, 
the multiverse, like all of those things, the, the, the possibilities when, you know, in that sliding doors moment, you went left instead of right. And what if was always that, um, you know, it was a sort of exploitation of the ways that comics could offer infinite alternative possibilities in their stories because it was an interconnected universe. And so, you know, initially when folks started being like, whoa, Iron Man and Captain America and Hulk are crossing over, like in the movies, that's insane, you know? And we were like, yes, that's exactly what the comics, you know, do and you know that's why when you pick up issue 45 it's so esoteric because you you had to know something but it's okay just just hang with it and roll with it and i i love talking to friends who started watching mcu at movie number 15 you know <laughs> and like then then they're like oh i need to go back and watch and and so now disney plus makes it all just a click away to get caught up on the marvel universe or heck you you don't even have to just watch one of those legends uh little you know video thingies and you got the basic backstory and you're good to go and so you know with now these mcu streaming shows with all of the hints and the as we can see now this gradually cracking open the door um through loki and so on of the concept of the multiverse we get this what if cartoon and uh, you know i just i'm this is late at night i'm just coming from my daughter <laughs> warming my nerd heart, my nerd dad heart by by telling us that she can't wait for the second episode after watching Captain Carter, after watching the first episode of What If and, you know, the, the What If Peggy Carter, you know, got the serum. And, you know, so here at the Infinite Unlimited on Comic Syllabus, we <laughs> read widely and dig deep in, the, um, in all of the offerings that are mind-blowingly at your fingertips if you have a Marvel Unlimited or a DC Universe Infinite subscription, the volumes and volumes and volumes of comics that are there for you. And so um, Marvel Unlimited has been curating these various what-if lists with the coming of, ad, of, uh, of What If the show. There's Ralph Macchio's favorite what-if stories, Ralph Macchio original editor of or, or one-time editor of, of of the what if series uh, not the crowded kid Ralph and then you know just various like there's all these lists you go on to Marvel Unlimited and so I've been dipping into a bunch of those and I read some what if when I was younger um and but I don't remember them all the components of, I mean they were I, I missed them I <laughs> like I wasn't paying enough attention but now that we have Jeffrey Wright as Watu the Watcher uh um I, I got to share, my daughter was making jokes about how wordy these comics were and how he, she called Watu, he was Wat-explaining so much. <laughs> Wat-explaining, uh, that's a good one. And then she started to make jokes about Wat, Watu if, what if. Uh, yes, she is one, she, Apple did not fall too far from this tree. Anyway. You know, we were reading these old What If comics. What if Spider-Man was part of the Fantastic Four? You know, uh, what if Jane Foster Thor, you know, decades before Jane Foster Thor? Um, I read the What If Spider-Man Became Punisher, you know, <laughs> and Ultraviolent. But the framing that we now see in the TV shows and that, you know, I just love 
hearing from non-comics readers who are like, oh, this is so interesting and very out there. Like, what if one little thing was different and changed the course of the stories? And um, that was always the fascination and the hook and the intrigue of the comic books. In a way, I tended to ignore them because I, I wanted to only read things that mattered. I was into the big mega story, you know, the uh, sacred timeline story. And so Elseworlds, Elseworlds stories or what if stories were always not that interesting to me because the stakes felt different. But I could see the fun and the fascination. And then the notion that these uh, what if stories, that this Peggy Carter that we don't get to have, perhaps we get to break through and we get to have that Peggy Carter. Like we get to have Peggy, you know, Captain Carter's back in season after season of animated what if. Um, and in fact, maybe Haley Atwell will don the costume at some point and um, we'll get live action Peggy Carter. And then the prospect of the, you know, Star-Lord T'Challa that's coming up soon later this season and Killmonger as Black Panther and, and, and just Chadwick Boseman's voice like all these things that we're getting in what if are just kind of mind-blowing and what they show so beautifully is the way that these superhero worlds yeah they can be superficial and thin and um, distractions but they they can also they're, they're just about infinite possibility and there's some great power to that you know there's some great power to your ability to resist the most deterministic of views of the world that, you know, some Stan Lee in the sky is writing the script for all the world. But maybe, just maybe, that one little change and everything could go differently. And I just think that that sense of possibility is not only great fun for readers, but also something that, you know, art the ways that our feelings of human agency can just get overwhelmed with how overdetermined things can be for for people based on where you grew up or where you were born or what resources you have or what's happening in the world. Um, and comics are so much about defying that, you know? We're leaping and bounding over that, like Steve Rogers in it. Um, it's, uh, it just feels so good seeing Peggy kick butt the way that she does and I just super love that animation so I am very into that show um right now as you can tell and um and I'm having a blast reading what if and and as I keep coming back to maybe the funnest thing of all is is watching the show with my wife and with friends and then and then reading those comics with my daughter diving into that uh, archaic <laughs> Roy Thomas language and reading these non-decompressed um, stories where a million things happen. You know, I heard a lot of uh, critiques that this, you know, first episode of What If was basically like they scrunched the whole Captain America First Avenger movie into 30 minutes and so it was moving too fast and didn't get give folks time enough to breathe and I, and I just wanted to say like yeah but that's the whole point look we're, we're telling these alternative stories it, it hinges on 
on rolling this out fast because you have some prior knowledge. And so we're not retelling the whole story. We're, we're showing the impact of all these various touch points and, and, and these, these turning points. Look at the original What If comics. They are super, super packed. They would tell like 40 issues of Fantastic Four within 30 pages, but the whole point was all of these points of departure, you know, these moments of, again, the sliding doors when Sue Storm says to Peter Parker, no, wait, you know, come back. And then ends up at the end of the story, uh, married to Namor or something like that. You know, like they, there's just the diverging timeline possibility where you have to get through a lot of story and it has to be pretty packed in because it's all about where this story twists and turns in a different way. And uh, as a teacher, one of the things I've learned from is um, sort of liberatory theater educator, Augusta Bowles, Bowles ideas about um, what he calls the theater of the oppressed. And it's a kind of practice of, of anti-oppression, socially emancipatory theater work where actors, sort of participant audiences come to not just reenact, but in fact, to step in and alter, reimagine this story, the scene in ways that don't peg or pigeonhole, no pun intended with peg, <laughs> you into whoever you would be because, you know, some jerk misogynist general says that you aren't supposed to take up a shield or or be sent into battle you know uh theater of the oppressed is all about in the imagination of theater stepping into an and uh, again not just fun not just fun there's like an empowerment in there and so i think what if is a vibe <laughs> what if is a vibe and we should all be dancing to it. Um, that's fun. Check those out on Marvel Unlimited. Meanwhile, I also um, took advantage of my HBO Max subscription to <laughs> watch what I probably would not have watched until it showed up on HBO otherwise. Um, the new Suicide Squad. Um, the Suicide Squad, I should say. Directed by James Gunn. Um, the redo. The uh, the boot reboot uh sequel seek boot um, because the last one was terrible and i you know i i actually really liked the birds of prey movie um i thought that was pretty good um and i think james gunn was the right person to press this particular button and so if you have dc universe infinite you can look for the you know hey suicide squad read the comics here it's a not terribly fruitful or fun pursuit to try to read the first appearances of all the characters that you've come to fall in love with. You know, the rat catcher that you'll find in the comics is by no means, not uh, neither the Taika Waititi <laughs> nor the amazing um, actor who who plays rat catcher too. Uh, same holds for Polka Dot Man and so on. So um, even the new King Shark comic they have, it's pretty good, but it's basically a retread of the movie. Um, but what's worth checking out is the original John Ostrander 
written um, series that they have there on DC Universe Infinite. Because what makes this movie pretty good, uh, in my eyes, I, I, I think I'd give it a B plus, maybe B, <laughs> depending on my mood, is the subversiveness of this notion that, hey, if we got nothing left to lose, uh, who's better to be the good guys that you send on the suicide mission than the bad guys? And so that whole premise, um, which now kind of makes me curl my lip a little bit because it just feeds into the kind of dark guy hero, overly uh, glorifying and the jokerness of it all thing that so many DC movies fall into. And, you know, people say that it's an exception with Shazam and Wonder Woman. And I feel that too, but I don't, don't actually love those movies all, all that much either. Um, but the, um, the, the vibe of something exciting is going on because something super subversive is happening here. Um, that is the source of the humor as well as the excitement and suspense and something cool in Suicide Squad. Man, to see it on screen done pretty well and then to read the um, original Suicide Squad run as it was conceived with, you know, Amanda Waller and Rick Flagg uh, and then really just a ragtag collection of crooks and criminals. Um, there's a... There's just a looseness and a playfulness that isn't trying too hard in those original comics. And it's just kind of reveling in the situation um, and the twists and turns that I, I, I really feel like um, James Gunn and, and, and these actors, you know, Margot Robbie, Idris Elba, the whole, the whole nine, they really, they really captured it pretty, pretty dang well. Um, and so, man, if, if that movie is, despite the, what they're reporting the poor box office showing <laughs> is at minimum compelling people to check out the original Suicide Squad. Um, maybe they're disappointed that there's no, but stick with it, <laughs> y'all, because to what I was, you know, talking about earlier with what if and, and hey, for that matter, run. Um, I think that the subversiveness of the Suicide Squad idea, the idea that in some ways, the only people that can get what's really needed done, who can roll up their sleeves and take the position that um, is going to save the world, um, be it Starro or be it ecological catastrophe, um, may be the ones that you least expect. Um, because when you know you have nothing left to lose, you will lay it on the line. Um, I'm just saying tropey phrases now. <laughs> and and when you can laugh at the, your days ahead because you know they're numbered, um, that lets you confront the utterly terrifying uh, monsters, which, you know, Starro, yes, but really it's the other monsters. It's the monster of the deceptive American government and um, these, you know, military puppets who are holding down their own people. Like <laughs> those monsters, um, yeah, they, they, they require rebels. And so um, 
I think the rebelliousness for rebelliousness sake, aesthetic, that is, gosh, such a vapid music video in the first Suicide Squad movie, um, actually has a little bit of humor, heart, and substance in the second movie. And to me, that brings back really the best of the original Suicide Squad comics um, that made them so fun. Um, so I love any chance I get to hat tip or shout out um, John Ostrander. And I think DC Universe Infinite um, serves that, that stuff up. And I hope that if you had a nibble from the movie, but you've never partaken of the feast in the comics. Um, hey, that pretty much sums up my thoughts this week. Um, man, I've been reading, you know, I, I still keep reading new comics that are out. And maybe if there's a next polybag segment, I'll talk about some of those. I've also been, I'll, I'll tell you, we we, um, we got a bunny, we got a rabbit, and uh, we didn't name the bunny. Um, the rabbit's foster mom uh, gave him a very cool name. His name is Dashiell. And uh, just hearing that, oh, it brought me back to being a kid and really utterly being charmed, um, hypnotized by the hard-boiled detective genre and Dashiell Hammett, who is, you know, really who popularized the name, which is quite popular. I think Ashton Kutcher's kid is named Dash or something like that, Dashiell. Um, but but I, it made me think back like, oh, Dashiell Hammett, I want to I read some Malte Maltese Falcon and Secret Agent X-9. And so I dug up all of my old things that are already deep in, you know, locked away storage of, of that stuff. And at the same time, I was listening to... Um, What's it called? John Suntress's Word Balloon. He was talking to, to, yeah, I forget his name, but talking about the upcoming 90th anniversary of Dick Tracy. And just thought back to all the Dick Tracy I read as a kid around the time of that, that movie coming out. And, and what a devotee that made me of, of, <laughs> it's funny to think about now, of really a cop. <laughs> a cop who he and his uh, compadres probably should have been held accountable for some of that, that stuff. Um, but, um, man, I, I, and digging those things up now, again, bring me back to how comics have just inlaid in my head a whole lot of impressions about what we ought to be about. Probably explains why I'm so messed up in the head, uh, <laughs> but also too busy doing too many things. So I thank you for the minutes you've devoted to riding with me and my ramblings about these books. Um, thanks for your support for Comic Syllabus. Like I said, I'm not sure about its future. Uh, if, uh, if I put the whole thing on ice again, I'll be sure to um, put out another episode just thanking y'all. And, um, and on the other hand, if I don't know if y'all have some thoughts about these or any other books my god it means the world to me for you to to reach out so do so and um let's keep reading all right take care